Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate your support. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. That's $5 Canadian a month, and you get to hear us talk about twice as many engineering failures. Those mini failure episodes come out on the opposite Sunday from our regular episodes. And there's a list of mini failure episodes we've done so far on our website on the exclusive content page at failureology.ca. This is our last episode for 2022. I just want to take a second to say happy holidays to all of you, whatever you're celebrating, including all of the Grinches and Scrooges out there. Personally, I try to celebrate moving as little as possible from the couch during the holiday period. One time when I was was not living in Calgary, I was living fairly far up north, I told my parents that I was going to friends for Christmas dinner. I told friends I was going to my parents for Christmas dinner. And then I think I spent a week pretty much not going outside, not talking to anyone, not moving from the couch. It was great. That does sound pretty nice. It was really nice. I also hibernate over this period. Yes. So many blankets. Thank you to all the support you've given us this year. And we look forward to bringing you more engineering failures in 2023. But at the same time, we also hope that things don't continue to fail due to poor engineering design, even if that would mean ending this show. But unfortunately for society, and fortunately for us, that is unlikely the case. Things keep failing, which is really unfortunate for them and great for us. The list just doesn't ever get shorter. If things stopped failing, um, we'd still have a large backlog to work through. So it would probably be a couple of years of working through the backlog. So the show would be on for a little while if stuff stopped failing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This week in engineering news, engineering is a regulated profession in Canada for a reason. So this article, it comes from APEGA, which is the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta. APEGA is the organization that regulates the engineering and geoscience professions in Alberta, and throughout every province and territory in Canada, there are similar organizations, obviously different name. So this article comes as a rebuttal of sorts to the tech sector after they complained about not being able to use the title engineer in their job postings and titles without acquiring proper permitting and licensing from APEGA. The use of the title engineer is something that APEGA takes very seriously, and we'll talk about this later on in the episode. But in order to use a title engineer, you have to be an engineering company that's accredited by a PEGA or be an engineer that's accredited by a PEGA in a professional capacity. So you can't just tack on engineer to a lot of job titles like some companies in the States were doing that were posting jobs here in Alberta. As such, like a PEGA maintains that engineering is a regulated profession and should remain as such, which is one of the reasons they took issue with, with the job postings having engineer in the job title without having a proper permitting and license from a PEGA. And software engineer is one of the engineering disciplines that you can seek regulation for from a PEGA and the other engineering boards. So it's not like they don't have any option. It's just that they have to go through the proper channels and be regulated. And let me just state for the record that I completely agree with a PEGA here. I think that engineering... I think that the term engineer should remain a regulated word. I think the profession should be 
regulated and monitored and people that are using it without going through the vetting process and making sure that they have the qualifications to call themselves an engineer, I think really just sets us all up for trouble down the road. As per Engineers Canada, only those who are licensed can use the term engineer and courts can and have imposed fines and injunctions for unauthorized use of the title. So this is this is quite similar to other uh other professions, other professional professions, I guess. So like doctors and lawyers kind of have the same thing to work with. So one of the major factors is the qualifications to be able to call yourself an engineer, making sure that you have the proper training, that you have the professional ethics to be able to follow the duties of an engineer and first and foremost, protect the public. Another piece of this and and why I think this is so important is the perception of engineers from the public. So if we strengthen our self-regulation and ensure accountability amongst those in our profession, we can maintain a high level of trust from the public. But if we just start throwing out the word engineer and anyone who wants to can use it, it starts to mean less. And as people who are using that term do things that are outside of our code of ethics and that potentially leads to harm of people, it's going to start to erode the public's trust in our profession. And and that's just something that none of us want and really makes our job that much more difficult. Yeah. And I think it's very similar to, uh, you know, medical professions or legal professions like doctors and, and lawyers. If if everyone just decided that they were a doctor, they were a lawyer, there there's some far reaching consequences in, in both those professions, as well as engineering for people that are unaccredited that are representing themselves as a professional member. Um, you know, certainly with, with a doctor, I mean, I don't know anything about medical things. I, uh, I wanted to be a doctor at one point, and then I didn't do very well in biology in grade 11, and that kind of put any healthcare-related profession on hold for me. But yeah, if, if somebody that isn't, doesn't have the right training for it and you know the right experience they're giving medical advice, that has some a potential for fairly drastic and fatal consequences for a lot of people. So it is important to have regulation around a lot of professions that relate to, relate to public safety. Um, which is where, you know, engineering comes in and where Apega takes such a strong stance on who can and can't call themselves um, an engineer. So as I mentioned, in Canada, specifically Alberta, software engineering is a recognized discipline and it requires extensive training and education as well as licensing. And like Brian had mentioned, companies who practice engineering or wish to use engineering in their company title must also acquire a permit to practice from APEGA, which includes a professional practice management plan detailing requirements for those permit holders to meet the intent of the Engineering and Geoscience Professions Act to protect the public. So it's my understanding that Alberta is currently the only province that requires a professional practice management plan, but others are slowly following suit. And I do know a lot about the plan firsthand because as someone who's just started their own engineering firm, I've just gone through this process. And I do think it's really good to create that plan. It makes you think about a lot of different things that you may not have thought about, such as how are you backing up your documents? How are you saving your documents? How are you preventing conflicts of interest? How are you peer reviewing your drawings? Who's stamping drawings and who's signing the permit to practice? And and all of these different parts and pieces that go along with operating an engineering firm. I, I think I think it's a really good thing that they're putting that that people have to put that plan together. Yeah, I, I think it is too. It's a little arduous, you know, certainly if you're starting from scratch just to go through all the requirements in the professional practice plan. 
But like you mentioned, it, it's a really good thing, I think, to have up front where, like you said, it, it makes people think about, you know, how you're going to deal with conflicts of interest, how you're going to do drawing preparation, how you're going to back things up, um, who's going to stamp things, who's responsible for various things in your company, um, you know, versus if you just started a company and you hadn't thought of any of that stuff. And then later on down the road, it became an issue. Professional practice management plan makes you makes you think of that stuff up front, which I think is a good thing. And I, I hope more more provinces and more engineering organizations do uh, do embrace that that sort of thing. Yeah, agreed. And and the reason I think software engineering should be a, one of the regulated disciplines is because we're only going to continue to advance technology. And we're using more machine learning tools than we have ever before to make decisions. And when we're doing that, the importance of public safety in the design of those tools is paramount. Oh, absolutely. Just with, I feel the rise of electric vehicles and self-driving car technology, you know, and other things that are like said, that are more software driven, there are significant risks or there can be significant risks to health and public safety that derive directly from decisions that software engineers are making. So so I do think it's important that, that software engineers do become part of the, you know, or, or are part of, you know, a regulated profession, you know, in a, in a PEGA. And I, I think moving forward, we'll just see more and more software development, um, you know, and more implications of, of software design consequences for the public. For sure. For sure. So this is something that I think Brian and I both agree on. We support a PEGAS decision, not that they're necessarily asking us, but if they were, we, we agree with their stance and um, we think that engineering should continue to remain a self-regulated profession. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in this episode. But for right now, if you want to read Apega's article on engineering as a regulated profession, please check out the link in the show notes to this episode on failureology.ca. This episode of Failureology is brought to you by Shorts, Shorts, Shorts. They're shorts that are short. Made by shorts. Not to be confused with pants. These are different. This seems pretty self-explanatory from the name, but yet, here we are, trying to fill the next 15 seconds of advertising time. Now on to this week's engineering failure. We're going to talk about the time that the Order d'Engineers du Quebec lost their ability to self-regulate the engineering profession in their province, which is a pretty big deal, in my opinion. This is not great for them. Yeah, th this is a huge deal. If you lose your status as a self-regulating profession, there are likely a lot of things that have gone very wrong in multiple steps along the way for you to lose your, your status as a self-regulated profession. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the history of engineering in Canada and I guess what the profession looks like today. As we've mentioned, um, engineering has a, a long history, I think, in, you know, not just in Canada, but around the world. A lot of the advances that we have today are a direct result of hundreds, thousands of years of, of engineering and evolution of engineering technology. The very first act, though, to regulate the practice of engineering was passed, at least in Canada, in Manitoba in 1896. So this happened about 10 years before the collapse of the Quebec Bridge. And obviously the Quebec Bridge collapsing, that set off a whole host of 
other regulations that engineers in Canada and Quebec and, and likely around the world, um, you know, have to abide by. In 1920, regulating bodies formed in Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. So Ontario, they followed a few years later in 1922. Saskatchewan followed eight years later from that in 1930. Newfoundland in 1952. Prince Edward Island, 1955. Yukon Territory is 1956. Northwest Territories in 1969, and none of it in 2008. Uh, and the reason that none of it was so late to kind of the party of having regulating bodies for them, um, none of it didn't exist until 1999. What is now known as none of it and the Northwest Territories used to just all be Northwest Territories, so none of it's the eastern half, the eastern portion of what used to be the Northwest Territories. The Dominion Council of Professional Engineers formed in 1936, changing their name to Engineers Canada in 2007. And Engineers Canada works with all of the provincial and territory regulators to support high standards of the profession, enhance growth, and inspire public confidence. Today, there's about 300,000 members of the engineering profession, which I think is a pretty cool thing that there's so many of us throughout the country. That means like 1% of the entire population of Canada is an engineer. It's something like 0.07%. I did the math. In addition to regulations around the profession of engineering in Canada, there's also an iron ring. I'm sure a lot of people have seen this on engineers. It's worn on the pinky finger of the working hand. And the ring itself is a symbol and a reminder of the obligations and ethics to the profession and also to the public. So the ring is handed out in a, in a ceremony, it's a private ceremony for engineering graduates called the Ritual Calling of an Engineer. However, the ring just by itself doesn't mean that somebody is a practicing professional engineer. There's a couple other things that, that engineers have to satisfy before they, can, before they can be a practicing professional engineer. Such as registering with a PEGA. That's one of them. And passing the National Professional Practice Exam which is a ethics and construction law exam that you have to write as part of your application. Yes. Yeah, so, so we'll talk about those things in a little bit. The iron rings, though, they're actually, they're typically not made from iron. They're, they're now made of stainless steel. And the first one, the first one costs the equivalent of four years of tuition, a whole bunch of tears and many hours of lost sleep, at least for me. Maybe not the tears part, but uh, there were many hours of frustration and definitely hours of lost sleep. However, if you do lose your ring, they can be purchased from the Corporation of the Seven Wardens for $30. So big upfront cost, big initial cost um, in time and money. And then after that, 30 bucks. The first iron rings were handed out on April 25th, 1925 in Montreal with a ceremony in Toronto following shortly after that. There is a myth that the rings are made from the beams of the first Quebec bridge that collapsed in 1907, but this is not the case. And as far as I know, rings were never made from any of the, um, any of the material that came from the Quebec bridge collapse. But you would not believe how widely spread that myth is. A lot of people have mentioned that to me in passing over the years. Even if at one point they were, even if at one point they were made from material from that bridge, it's almost a hundred years later from when the bridge collapsed. That would be a ton of material in the bridge. And if there's 300,000 engineers in Canada right now, that's a whole host of rings. That's millions of, of engineering rings that have been made over, over times. 
Let's also, you know, we're all engineers here. Let's also logistically think about this. Do you think that they constructed and or purchased a warehouse to house the remnants of the Quebec Bridge for decades so that they could slowly chip away one ring at a time? I mean, it may be a symbol of the bridge, and I do think that is a great fit because of the way the Quebec Bridge collapsed. And we covered that in episode six, if you want to go back and listen. But the logistics of actually manufacturing the rings from the bridge steel just don't quite make sense to me. So there's that. Since we're in Alberta, we want to talk about Apega a little as well. So Apega was created on April 10th, 1920, as Brian mentioned, and they regulate the practice of engineering and geoscience in Alberta on behalf of the government of Alberta, and they do this through the Engineering and Geoscience Professions Act. And their responsibilities are to license professional engineers and geoscientists. They set our practice standards, develop codes of conduct and ethics that govern our members and permit holders. They investigate and discipline members and permit holders, which is a really important part of, of their job, to make sure we all stay accountable. They investigate and take action when individuals or organizations that practice our profession without license or permit, which is how the article that we covered in Engineering News kind of came to be. People were using the term engineering without being regulated, and so APEGA sought further investigation and action against that group. And finally, they provide services to members and permit holders to support them in their professional practice. Along with these responsibilities and our privilege to self-regulate, Engineering professionals also have our own code of ethics, and this ties into that national professional practice exam that I talked about earlier. So as professional engineers, we, in all areas of practice, must hold paramount the health, safety, and welfare of the public and have regard for the environment. So public safety, rule number one. We also must undertake only work that we are competent to perform by either our training or our experience. So rule number two, know what you're doing. We also have to conduct ourselves with integrity, honesty, fairness, and objectivity in our professional activities, which we're going to see a lot of failings as we talk about when Quebec lost their ability to self-regulate. We have to comply with statutes, regulations, bylaws, codes, standards, such and such. And we have to uphold and enhance the honor, dignity, and reputation of our profession. So PEGA regulates more than 70,000 members and is the largest regulatory body in Western Canada. As part of the process to become an engineer, it differs province to province. So this is just for, for Alberta. So somebody applying to be an engineer in Alberta, you have to complete a minimum of a bachelor's degree in engineering from an accredited program, have a minimum of four years of engineering experience, submit an application with work records and references, and complete the national professional practice exam. So it's a fairly onerous process, I think, to, uh, you know, to apply to be an engineer. Even though you've completed four years of school, there's still another four years of additional engineering training and experience that you need. And the four years of that has to be, there's a maximum um, that can basically be administrative or technical in nature. And then the bulk of that has to be engineering, professional engineering related work. And during that time, Somebody's overseeing your work, so you can't sign or stamp any engineering drawings. Somebody's always supervising your work and then will take responsibility um, for the work that you do after they go through their review. After the four years and after you apply to APEGA, APEGA goes through a process on their end to verify your work experience records and check with your references, as well as go through kind of your educational background and make sure that you meet 
the requirements that a PEGA requires you to meet. And then after a period of time, it, it, it varies depending on how many applications a PEGA has um, at the time. But I'm going to say typically like three months to you know nine months a year on the longer end when they were really busy with applications. They'll make a decision whether you're able to use the title of professional engineer and whether they'll grant you the ability to practice engineering in, in Alberta. Yeah, so that's the most common path for sure. I took a bit of a different journey. My designation is a professional licensee of engineering, which is a little bit different from a professional engineer. So instead of having a university degree, I went to a three-year college and I have a diploma in a accredited engineering technology program. So I started out as a technologist and then I needed a minimum of six years experience, but I had 12 when I applied because I didn't quite have any urgency in that application, but I'm really glad that I did go through with it and and apply to be a PLNG. Uh, as well, I had just submit a work experience record. I still had to write the same exam and I have a limited scope of practice based on my specific work experience, but I'm still really happy with my path and what I did and I think it was best for me and I I still get to use the title engineer and that's really exciting. I do love being an engineer. This work is so much fun. This sounds really corny. So I'm going to apologize in advance, but it almost feels like I'm cheating. Like work isn't supposed to be this fun, but it is. And that feels like I'm cheating. I'm not, but it, I don't know. It's weird. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, some of the, uh, some of those fun times I guess I've had at work have been, related directly to engineering or like trying to figure out a you know a best way or even a way to solve an engineering problem some of the most fun i've had have been on you know problems or projects where i was like oh this, this should be super straightforward there shouldn't be an issue and then once you get further and further into it I'm like dang this is this is way more challenging than what i thought it would would be and then you know how, however long it takes like weeks or months to figure out a solution and then when that solution actually works you're like wow, that was really cool. Like I, I got to use, you know, prior experience or engineering experience or, you know, things from school or just other professionals that I talked to, to assemble this solution to problem or an issue or to find a better way to optimize a process or a, you know, procedure. So yeah, I, I do have a lot of fun with engineering. I don't know if I, I would pick a different career path if, if I had the choice to do it over again. I'm like 98 percent satisfied with with engineering as a as a discipline it's, it's fairly broad um you know for what you can do with with engineering so my background is, is geomatics engineering so it's all position based so gps and positioning um and kind of lidar and, and imagery data but things like mechanical engineering or civil engineering or chemical engineering there's a lot of diversity i think that exists within the engineering profession for what you can do or if you decide after you know, a few years of doing, you know, say mechanical engineering on one aspect of mechanical engineering, a lot of that experience that you have will almost directly transfer over to something within that same mechanical engineering discipline, which I think is really neat. To me, engineering is figuring out how to do something that hasn't been done before, which is why it's so fun. So I've, we've talked about the National Professional Practice Exam a little bit, and I know we have some U.S. listeners, so I wanted to just touch on this quickly. 
So that exam confirms knowledge of professionalism, law, and ethics, but it's very different from the FE, Fundamentals of Engineering, and PE, Principles and Practice of Engineering, exams that are written in the United States. So the NPPE is an ethics-based exam, but doesn't include any technical components, whereas the FE and PE are both technical exams. They're both very long challenging exams. I think they're eight or nine hours each, depending on what your discipline is. And I have heard they are very hard. The other thing, so Opega can um, request that you do some training courses or university courses if they feel that your academic experience is a little bit lacking. Typically, people that apply to Opega that have gone through an accredited program in Canada, that typically won't be an issue. Um, But Opega can require a request and require you to do subsequent or additional academic courses if they feel that you're lacking in certain areas. Yes. So on to the piece de resistance, the time that the OIQ, Quebec engineering regulating body, lost their ability to self-regulate. I know we took a bit of a windy path to get here, but we wanted to give you a bit of a background on what it means to be an engineer and why we think regulating our profession and having the privilege to self-regulate our profession is so important. And we also know that we have listeners from all over the world. And so there probably are a lot of you that aren't completely familiar with the process in Canada. And so that's kind of why we took a bit of a windy path. Now, this is a story of corruption and lack of oversight in the construction industry, specifically throughout the public sector in Quebec. And I'm, I'm just going to preface this part of the episode by saying this story has a tendency to slant political just because of the involvement of the public sector and of the type of corruption that was going on. But we are not a political podcast. And so we're going to do our best to stay fact-based and focus on the importance of maintaining integrity in the engineering profession. And like we do in every episode, we have links to all of our sources where we found all of the information that we're talking about. And those are on the episode page. If you want to check that out, it's at failureology.ca. If you live in Canada, you've probably heard this before. I mean, Quebec's no stranger to corruption. There's been talk of appointing judges, choosing who who those are, political financing, favoritism in the political daycare system, a long undisclosed premier stipend, and corruption in construction. In fact, it's said that it costs 30% more to build a stretch of road in Quebec than anywhere else in the country. There was also a bunch of rushed mega projects in the 70s that are not doing so great these days. And of course, the sponsorship scandal, which was the siphoning of $100 million that was meant to stamp the Canadian flag on all things Quebecois. All of that said, though, Quebec is not the only province that suffers from corruption. They just seem to have more of it, or at least be more public about it than the rest. Honestly, we all have our problems. I think, I don't think there's a country in the world that isn't without problems. Quebec just seems to They just seem to be in the spotlight a lot more. But luckily, maybe too little too late, but but eventually all of their corruption came to a head in 2011 when then-premier Jean Charest ordered the Charbonneau Commission. It was published in 2015, so this was a four-year investigation, and it was a public inquiry into the award and management of public construction contracts. It was chaired by Justice France Charbonneau, a Canadian judge on the Quebec Superior Court, hence the name. Before I get any further, I also want to mention that I don't speak French very well, so I'm probably pronouncing some of these words funny, and I'm sorry in advance. 
The mandate of this committee was to examine the existence of schemes and, where appropriate, to paint a portrait of activities involving collusion and corruption in the profession and management of public contracts in the construction industry, which included private organizations, government enterprises, and municipalities, and to include any links with the financing of political parties. The committee also wanted to paint a picture of possible organized crime infiltration in the construction industry, and also examine possible solutions and make recommendations establishing measures to identify, reduce, and prevent collusion and corruption in awarding and managing public contracts in the construction industry. So it's a fairly broad scope um, that the committee was looking to have an understanding of. I think all those things are really important, especially, you know, to look into, you know, various corruption things, whether it's in construction or schemes or where money goes, especially for public projects. And their scope was from 1996 to 2011 and included 263 days of hearings, 300 witnesses, 3,600 documents, and it produced 70,000 pages of transcripts, which is a lot of typing. The scope included any agency or person in the public sector, which included hundreds of government agencies, universities, municipalities, school boards, and companies with government ownership. As a result of this, the commission found conflicts of interest when awarding public contracts. They found inappropriate ties between union executives and construction contractors. They also found bid rigging, whereby the bidding parties collude to determine the winner of the bidding process. Throughout this investigation, they found evidence of corruption in engineering firms and construction contractors around conflicts of interest, collusion, kickbacks, mafia infiltration, and political financing. And these unacceptable behaviors of engineering professionals were not related to their technical competence, but a failure of professional ethics. Five consulting engineering firms are among the largest service providers in this investigation throughout the city of Montreal. And we pulled information on some of the cases and charges against each of these companies. Before we dive in, we'd like to note that these were all pulled from public news sources, and we'd also like to acknowledge that these companies may have since learned the error of their ways, I mean, hopefully, and improve their operation standards. So we're not saying this is how they're operating today by any stretch. We're just relaying the message of the investigation and charges against them. One of the cases investigated was related to fraud and forgery in relation to $22.5 million kickback under the guise of, quote, consulting fees in the McGill University Health Center. SNC-Lavalin was outbid by $60 million, but still won the contract for the project. And following the investigation, the administrator for the hospital project was arrested on fraud charges and the SNC CEO was charged in several counts related to the bribe. SNC actually ended up suing their CEO, claiming he stained its goodwill. Genevar, now known as WSP, acknowledged that they made a $525,000 improper political contribution to get municipal contracts between 2005 and 2009. Employees at SEMA Plus gave $2.2 million in political donations to provincial parties between 98 and 2011 and produced fake invoices for $3 million in order to give cash bribes to the city of Laval. The head of Group SM was found guilty of having tolerated and neglected to take measures that would prevent his firm from being involved in a system of sharing contracts for engineering mandates, most notably for the city of Montreal and the city of Longueuil between 2002 and 2009. 
He also paid money to municipal parties to secure contracts, and as penalties for these items, the Disciplinary Council revoked the operating license and levied a fine of $50,000 against that head of Group SM. And these are just some of the examples of the corruption that went on. There are several more cases, some big, some small, over the 15-year period of the investigation. I will say, though, one doesn't start with a million-dollar bribe. I think that's something you work up to. So I have to imagine that this type of thing was going on for a long time in Quebec on at least some scale. Following release of the report in November 2015, the Ordre d'Ingénieurs de Quebec proposed responses to the Charbonneau Commission recommendations such as increasing membership fees to fund improved regulatory capacity, including mandatory ethics and professional conduct training and continuing professional development. The Quebec government decided that OIQ was not able to adequately respond to the problems and recommendations outlined in the Commission report, and on July 6, 2016, OIQ was placed under provincial government trusteeship. The Quebec government stated, The office determines that the effective execution of its activities of control of the profession and the financial stability of the OIQ are seriously affected to the point of putting in doubt the capacity of the OIQ of carrying out its primary mission of protecting the public. So essentially what's happened here is the OIQ is supposed to have checks and balances in place to prevent this type of corruption from getting out of hand and holding their members accountable to our standard of professional ethics. And after all of these things were exposed, the Quebec government, in a probably other words, but they're probably like, what are you guys doing over there? Like you're supposed, your whole role is to prevent this from happening and you didn't do anything. So get your ducks in a row, friends. And then OIQ started putting their ducks in a row, but they were not very well organized and they were so far behind that they weren't able to act quickly enough. And the government said, nope, too late. You guys can't handle this. This is well beyond what you're able to what you're capable of right now, and they put them under trusteeship, which basically means that there were additional members appointed to the OIQ board that oversaw their processes and made sure that they were following certain regulations and certain standards and essentially holding the self-regulating body, the OIQ, accountable to itself. And when this happened in 2016, this caused a chain reaction across all of the different regulatory bodies throughout Canada. And they all started taking a closer look at their policies and just to make sure that something similar wouldn't happen to them. And and luckily none did. Quebec's the only one that we know of that had this issue. But several provinces did strengthen their policies, specifically their continuing professional development mandates to make sure that this something like this would not happen amongst their membership. Just a quick note on what that looks like. In Alberta, you have to submit 240 continuing professional development hours over three years, which equates to about 80 hours per year. But it makes an allowance. So if you need to take a leave of absence for whatever reason, you can average over three years. And up to 50 hours per year can be logged as professional practice. So if you're already a practicing engineer, 50 hours are already accounted for just by doing your job. And then you can log hours for formal and informal activities, participation in the profession, presentations, and contributions to knowledge. 
In November 2018, so two years after the trusteeship started with the OIQ, Kathy Begg, who was the president then and still is now, penned an open letter asking the trusteeship to be lifted, stating that the OIQ had strengthened public protection mechanisms, consolidated governance, including leadership and board renewal. They were finally in good financial health. They saw a 67% reduction in the average time for disciplinary investigations, and they had adopted an extensive and measurable action plan. And so not just because they asked, but because they did all of the things that they were supposed to do and they're holding themselves accountable and they showed that they were able to tackle this issue and get their membership straightened out and get rid of the corruption issues that were going on amongst the engineering industry. The Quebec government lifted the trusteeship on February 20th, 2019. So there you have it, the story of how the OIQ lost its ability to self-regulate. This is a lesson to all engineers, Canadians specifically, about the privilege we have to self-regulate and the importance of our professional ethics to maintain public safety over all else. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failurology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. And check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the Algo Center mall collapse in Elliott Lake, Ontario. It's going to be a good one. Bye everyone. Talk soon. See you next year.